Welcome to Write Good, the only podcast that helps you write good. I'm Raquel Benedict, the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction. Science fiction and fantasy can imagine many things. Impossible worlds, unthinkable technology, fantastic creatures, magic, gods, and monsters. But for some reason, a lot of SFF authors have a hard time imagining stories about poor people and working class people. Fantasy stories often focus on royalty. Sci-fi protagonists tend to be middle or upper class, tenured professors, scientists, white-collar astronauts, federal agents, military officers, that kind of thing. And even when a story starts with a poor protagonist, by the end they've usually achieved knighthood or become captain of a spaceship or something like that. But what's wrong with writing about poor people or working class people? Don't they have stories worth telling? Talking about that with us tonight is returning champion Qualia. Hello. Hello again. Now, the reason I brought you on to talk about this is because I saw that you made a post on social media saying something to that effect of, hey, it'd be cool if we had like a fantasy series like Game of Thrones or something that focused exclusively on poorer working class characters. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a reasonable thing. But people went fucking crazy on you. People got really mad. They flipped out. Why do you think that is? It seemed to be a lack of imagination for the most part. There were a lot of people who agreed with me and then named books that were not about that, which was really strange. Or or they would say, actually, this already exists. And then name like The Witcher. The Witcher is not a... (laughs) He's not like stuck. Not that The Witcher is set in a medieval setting maybe like anthropologically medieval sort of, but he's not stuck on a plot of land. He's he's probably, if you had to classify him like merchant class, he provides a service and travels around. He, he's just not a peasant, specifically a peasant, and people just had trouble wrapping their heads around it. They, they named Pillars of the Earth, which is an excellent book, but is mostly about clergy and craftsmen who are not peasants it's it's just i don't know why people had such trouble with it and then and then they would talk about uh well why would i want to read about this these people don't have any agency i'm getting a little worked up about it it's upsetting to me Um, yeah which which seems to define agency in a very narrow way yes it really does um like, oh, if you don't have the command of an army, you have no agency. Right. <laughs> that, okay. Well, most of us don't have, most of us don't have a pet dragon we can ride on, but I would say that most of us have some degree of agency in our lives. Right. I think a lot of lit fic focuses more on that, that smaller agency as opposed to genre fic, which, which often does talk about the fate of worlds, although this is a really broad stereotype. Yeah. But. I don't know, like a a lot of people treat those, I won't say smaller, more personal stakes as if they're boring or inconsequential. And I just deeply disagree. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think it's a little sad to treat a story that way because for most of us, that's what our lives are. Right. So is it saying, well, is your life not really important? And for me, when... I find myself more invested when the stakes are smaller than when they're huge because when they're so huge, I kind of can't wrap my brain around it. When the the fate of the entire world depends on this one man, it just makes the world feel really small to me. It really does. Not that we're a huge fan of Marvel movies, but like the the Marvel movie I enjoyed the most past ten years was the tiny neighborhood Spider Man movie. It was huh. Spider-Man Homecoming because it was about his friends and Pete and the villain was his girlfriend's dad. And that was it. <laughs> that was those were the stakes were were his neighborhood, not the world. And it worked for me so much more. And then the subsequent movies, it's like now the fate of the world hangs in the bus. I'm like, OK, I'm bored again. Yeah, <laughs> because there, it was this sort of thing where, where the fact that this was his girlfriend's dad, that made it personal. Yeah, I think people mistake stakes for like the world now hangs in the balance like no raising the stakes is is now it's personal 
in any story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's raising emotional stakes. I, I feel like if you're counting it as raising the stakes only when there are more people involved, just, oh, a bigger normal, that a, a bigger number, that means I care more. No, not really. Yeah. This isn't a math problem. Yeah, exactly. I don't care more just because the number's bigger. Absolutely. And for me, for me, I kind of find it more compelling when a character has less agency and that the stakes are narrower, your your chances of success are narrower, your your powers are really limited. How can you manage this? For me, like seeing someone with very limited, if you want to call it agency or limited influence or, or with all these limitations on them, that's really, really compelling. It is. And, and often, at least for me as a writer, for the fiction I've written, forces me as a writer to be a lot more creative about how they get the hell out of this. And and often, pantser, I, I improvise stories, often the characters I write end up being way more resourceful than I planned them to be, which is, it's always, for me, that's the point at which a character comes alive is when I sit down in the moment and write and go, oh, crap, this character is going to make a decision with the resources they have, the limited resources they have to do something absolutely batshit that I right. didn't plan out. Right. There's this movie I really like, speaking of limited agency. It's called Wait Until Dark. It's Dar's um, Audrey Hepburn. It's from the 60s. And it's about this woman who's recently gone blind. And she's being terrorized in her apartment by these like two or three criminals. And she's this small woman who's blind. So she's at this massive disadvantage. And that's what makes it more compelling, like right. seeing how she has to deal with this when she can't see. And this is recent, so she hasn't really adapted well to being sightless. So she's this, she's at such a disadvantage. And what's exciting is seeing her figure her way through it and, and being, being resourceful. And there's this great bit at the end where she seals up the, the, the windows and, and kills the lights and just starts attacking them in the dark. Oh, hell yeah. And it's so good. It's so fucking good. And for me, that that's so much more exciting and, and compelling than watching someone with superheroes, with superpowers, because there is this vulnerability and, and the ability to sort of... Hi, Kat. <laughs> to, to triumph despite that and, and, and use it to your advantage is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I do think as progressive as science fiction and fantasy, sometimes wants to be that's like, a good way of putting it yeah when it starts talking about how it's it's just not interesting you know this is you know it's just not interesting to hear about these people like yeah these people exist but are they protagonist material and then you actually yeah. analyze who's marginalized well we're talking about the poor we're talking about the disabled we're talking about people who have historically had a lot of agency from them on maybe a larger scale, but their lives definitely still matter. <laughs> and they're still yeah. making decisions. Yeah, there's something kind of gross to me to, to take this attitude that only the stories of rich people matter, or only the stories of kings and queens matter. Well, that that's some shit. That's like, that's kind of a fascistic viewpoint almost. Incredibly. You and, know? And it's a historical. Um, yeah. We don't know as much about like medieval peasants as we do kings and queens and a topic where i'm like very amateur historian like know enough to be dangerous maybe don't know as much as i'd like to but they had extensive court documents from the time because they were very litigious peasants who they would have their plot of land that they were supposed to 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 keep and it would be right next to other people's plot of land and, and i don't think they'd invented fences until later than you think right <laughs> so there would be a lot of things like your cow wandered over onto my plot of land and ate some of it. And that means that I, I shouldn't have to pay taxes on that at the very least. And I need to be compensated for that. So stuff like that, like we, we have records of like, did these people like repeatedly sue each other? Did they like each other? And it, it wasn't a punitive court system they didn't really have they had punitive laws but people mostly worked through civil courts mm. and it was mostly sort of informal 
town hall meetings where people would sit down and, and, and argue amongst themselves. And then some the Lord or somebody representing the Lord would, would make a call on who was right and who, who what. Mm-hmm. And it's just fascinating that, that they knew the law so well that they would huh. pull shit like everybody would pretend to have communicable madness to prevent King's Road going through their town because it would raise their tax. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, just shit like that. Or they would know where their loan documents were at a local castle and they couldn't read, but they knew what a loan was and they knew what a loan document was. So they would all get together, bowl over the couple of guys guarding it and then burn their loan documents and nobody would know who owed what. <laughs> and then and then they'd all be like, well, I wasn't there. It's like, do you wasn't think- me. Yeah, it wasn't me. Wasn't like, there's well, no I IDs. Saw- there's no fingerprints. You don't fucking know. Yeah, you don't you know. You can't prove shit. Yeah, and it's like, well- how do you how do you know it was me? My buddy over there says I was I was in the field with him. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Yeah, like they they <laughs> that shit all the fucking time. They didn't they they tended not to like the monks because the monks would be all secluded and doing their own thing, and they would mostly be like the third or fourth sons of nobles. So they would do things like moon the monks. Chaucer would write about the wife of Bath, who's this hilarious woman who's had like five husbands. Yeah, she rocks. Yeah, and and I don't. I I think, if I recall correctly, I I don't see any indication she was a merchant's wife or anything. I think she was probably a peasant, and she was just somebody who had a lot of ideas about how men were equal to women. And the text doesn't treat this as ridiculous. They it treats her as kind of a fucking bat. All I remember about her is that she was cool, and I think she wore red stockings. Did she wear red stockings? I might be misremembering that. That sounds that sounds familiar. But there, I remember she, was... she wore kind of like flashy clothing or something yeah. like that. Yeah, because she, I think she was a bigamist. <laughs> nice. And it's just it's this body tale, and she rocks. Yeah, she she rocks, and and the idea that these people are boring. Chaucer didn't think they were boring. He was oh. there, and and you know. I only bring this up because, of course, history is not fantasy. Like, they're not interchangeable. But a lot of But I mean, a ton of fantasy is based on history. Right. And based on old literature. And even science fiction often draws anthropologically from specific periods in time. Oh, totally. So it's it's just, there's no excuse to, to, to find yeah. these people boring. Yeah, yeah, they had interesting lives. And it's frustrating because I've noticed that in contemporary short sci-fi fantasy, poor people, especially rural, poor white people, when they're portrayed, they're sort of the quick shorthand for bad reactionary types. They're the, they're the, they're the shorthand for Trump supporter. And for me, it rings a little hollow considering how so many re- reactionary neo-fascist movement people are kind of coming out of the affluent suburbs. Absolutely. Like a shitload of those rioters on the January 6th thing were bougie. A lot of these people were business owners and Mm -hmm. stuff. These were not poor people. I mean, if you were able to take time off of work to do this silly thing, you're you're probably not that poor. A lot of these people had, didn't the fucking vegan MAGA shaman guy like have a family Mm -hmm. lawyer on retainer or some bullshit like that? Yeah. I, I, I... he, he's bougie. These people are bougie. Proud boy types kind of come from well-to-do suburban neighborhoods, and those school shooters are usually not poor. I mean, an AR-15 is not a cheap gun. It's a couple thousand bucks. Yeah, like there are a lot of people who would, you know, if Ted Cruz is not a senator, look at his ostrich skin boots and his cowboy hat and think he was like a working class man. And his Wranglers, he's got like $600 boots and $20 jeans. Idiot. Right. It's the suburbanite with the pickup truck, but that pickup truck costs like $30,000. That guy's not poor. That, yeah, that guy's not poor. There are a lot of like weird number of pool cleaner business owners at January huh. 6th. Like weird number of those. But huh. And, you know, the Tucker Carlson guys who are like sunning their perineums, these are like if, a lot of these are like Californian tech guy types, new age oh, yeah. dudes. And a lot of people will say... That these are not conservatives. The guy who tried to kill Nancy Pelosi's husband with a hammer was a nudist and all this. There's conservatives, and I would say most people, don't fit into these neat boxes where, where you can tell what they are. 
based on one or two things because most people don't think through their politics enough right to have like a huge coherent ideology right and it feels like a socially acceptable way to dunk on poor people absolutely it's always these poor people who are bad it's this it's this specific type of poor person that's white so you can kind of you can dress it up as being anti-white but it's all, but it's a poor person it's not a rich person it's not a suburban person yeah. it is specifically a rural poor person and and it Feels kind of gross. And it feels a little bit also like it's borrowing from 1980s movies. I've seen multiple kind of award buzzy short sci-fi fantasy stories. I'm not going to name them because when I name them, I get in big trouble. Um, (laughs) In which our hero encounters some bad things from rural rednecks at a redneck bar. You know, they walk in and it's, boy, we don't like your kind. We're going to beat you up. And it's just, I think I saw this scene from an 80s movie. Absolutely. It it feels really phony and hollow. Yeah. And and if I don't know, there's there's definitely a tendency in, in some of those circles to to sort of draw endlessly from from things that aren't real, from from maybe this thing once referenced a real thing, but it's been referenced and referenced and referenced. And in some ways it, it's in some cases it refers to a world that doesn't really exist i'm not sure you see a lot of redneck here anymore not many and 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 if it is why are you stopping there if you're frightened of these places why 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 are you pulling over here right like when have you when has this the author of this story gone into a a redneck bar in in the boonies like probably never yeah my grandpa was a hillbilly like an actual hillbilly from Tennessee, from the Tennessee Valley, poorest area in the country during the Great Depression, like poorest, he didn't own shoes. Uh, Whoa. Yeah, he, he went to church on a wagon pulled by a donkey. He was bow-legged because he was malnourished. He had dirt floors. And his politics were complicated because he went to the Korean War, which, of course, comes with some yeah. major sins. But on the other hand, when he got back, he went to work for the Kinsey Institute as an Whoa. orderly. And as part of that, he went through a bunch of training on if you're going to work here, you need to be able to work with these people and you can't hate them. Whoa. So he watched videos on gay people. He watched videos on trans people. And when he he was basically a father figure to my sibling, who is who is very gay and possibly trans, he would sit us down both of us and say if if you love women or if you feel you were born in the wrong body there is nothing wrong with you and you have to understand this man had the thickest rural tennessee accent there was that's beautiful yeah and it's it's like people are like sitting there saying well when people talk about why would you want to tell stories about poor people you just have to have a bigger imagination than just imagining the poor person you have in your head. That story I told you, that guy is a protagonist. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. he was a major influence on, on like, only voice, the only adult voice I heard growing up said being queer was okay. And not just okay, but beautiful. So, yeah. Yeah, wow. That's cool. I'm I'm thinking... You're making me think of that in the 80s, the the unexpected but really beautiful alliance between striking coal miners and the LGBT movement. Mm-hmm. Because both kind of held hands and said, fuck you, Margaret Thatcher, together. And like, the I, I, I don't know the full story, but I know the, the queer rights movement sort of stood up for, for miners during the strike. And when it came time to like stick up for them, miners had their back. The idea that Oh, if you're poor, you have to be hateful and ignorant. It, it's 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 bullshit. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of transference of a person's own sins and 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 ignorance onto an easy target. I I mean, I one thing what I'll say about wealthy people is they're better at disguising their prejudice, better at wrapping it up in euphemism, but are are just as bad, if not worse. Absolutely, and. Yeah, for some reason, there's this this blind spot where where I'm just gonna say his name, Jesse Single. He he's just a plain reactionary, but he's he's his dad is a prosecutor. He's he was raised well, 
And for a while, until very recently, a bunch of people on the left really gave him a pass because he presented himself in a particular way because it would be improper to see him in in a bad light because he presents himself so well. He presents himself so rationally. How can you say this is a reactionary? He has the right mannerisms and the right vocabulary. Right. I I feel deeply uncomfortable sometimes in upper class circles because I've got my father came from sort of a professional class background, but my my mom came deeply working class background and I spent way more time with her family. And I myself, I didn't graduate high school. I had to I had to get my GED. And then I only got my my degrees because I needed to make more money just to get by. But that was a real struggle. I had to work through my entire through through full time while going to college full time, both degrees. So it was, and and then I got Pell Grants because I was poor. I've been poor. I've been homeless. It's, so I go into situations where I have to deal with upper class people because I can sort of put on my, my very prim voice and sort of pass. And it's, it's a deeply uncomfortable situation because sometimes I I feel like I fit in either place because I read as a little bit privileged to poor people. Mm -hmm. And then I read as a little bit podunk to to really well-off people but i I fit more into the working class i think Mm. yeah 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 right writing off working class and poor people or, or contemporary peasants as reactionary i think in the face of our contemporary strike movement right now too is especially like okay some of the some of the most optimism inducing hopeful hope inducing gains I've seen in politics lately have not come from politicians. They've come from the bottom. They've come from people who are going on strike and winning and winning unionization efforts. And over and over again, you see part of these union wins involve treating minority coworkers equally or fairly. Mm -hmm. Among their many, many, many demands, also a lot of them is like, hey, our, our supervisor's fucking racist. And you you need to do something about that, or or uh, being I don't know better to workers with disabilities. Absolutely, and this is coming from people striking at Starbucks, yeah, Amazon, or Amazon. These are not this is not upper class people. I I remember the Amazon lawyers. There was there was a a memo from within Amazon that got leaked to the press or something with some some Amazon executive saying, let Christian Smalls be the voice of the movement because, you know, look at him. Who's going to take him seriously? Right. Because he had this this very sort of working class, black look and mannerism to him. So they underestimated him. And he, he turned out he's a fucking brilliant organizer. He's amazing. And just because they, they wrote him off because he doesn't strike them as affluent as as upper crust yeah but they, hey guess what that's not what you need to run a fucking labor movement is it right and and like <laughs> john fetterman not everything he not every policy i'm a fan of right but he's he was a union guy and he's got some aphasia following a stroke and it it just feels like there's been this turning point where the common wisdom is is that people aren't going to take that sort of person seriously. And and maybe it's just because he's Democratic, although although Pennsylvania is, is a purple state, but it's it's more than a purple state. It's a very working class state. It's a prideful yeah. working class state. And he presented himself as the working class guy who who'd gone through some setbacks the way working class people do. Like being working class, like I, I delivered groceries i was delivery driver like commercial delivery driver in my early 20s it uses your body up oh yeah just completely uses it up eventually and and i knew a lot of people thankfully i was young but i knew a lot of people who by their mid-30s turned to meth just straight because they needed to be able to do those 16-hour shifts and and your body just can't do it anymore your mind can't do it anymore right and the expectation, you know, if you tell people about this, if you tell upper class people about this, middle class people about this, that's to them, that's just the way it is. 
Mm. What else are you supposed to do? Are you you like a bit sad, but you know, are you a real person with dreams and a brain? These people think we're idiots. That that you must have done something to deserve it. It doesn't occur to them that there are only a certain number of spots in the slot where they are and right. more people capable of doing that. And, and not only that, but in a utopia, somebody is going to have to clean the fucking toilets. Why is it right. that, that, that the person who does that doesn't deserve some dignity, doesn't deserve to be happy? Right. Doesn't deserve a decent income and a nice home. Right. And, and even like, I've been wanting to write a short story for a tom- long time. And so, oh, my God, don't steal. But <laughs> I've heard that Twitter and Facebook moderators, that is a miserable job. Oh, it sounds horrific. You see the worst fucking shit all day and right. you get paid garbage. It's it, Yeah, it's minimum wage. You You work in sort of a call center type situation and you repeatedly see images of death and worse. And I've, I've heard that, that PTSD levels are high drug use is high and I, I feel like sort of a vulture going this would make an incredible setting for a story oh yeah you could get an amazing horror story or something out of this yeah anything like that or just there's all sorts of things people don't know about delivery driving whether it's Insta- instacart which i've done or mm. just commercial delivery driving the sort of i i used to like listen to coast to coast am which is sort of full of conspiracy theories and it would be one in the morning and, and it would be completely silent in the middle of an empty city. And it's it's such a, I'm almost nostalgic for it, just sort of the extreme fatigue, feeling all my muscles just cramping up and listening to somebody talk about how aliens are real while I'm drinking, while I'm like shotgunning an energy drink and and something liquid with some calories to keep me going. I don't know why, but it's such a fucking vibe. And I feel like people are not curious about what keeps their lives going, like all the little invisible labors. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot, a whole lot of sci-fi and fantasy just get rid of that and it's magic or it's a replicator. Right. <laughs> the person, the a person doesn't make this anymore. You wave a fucking wand. Isn't that kind so of... So that person is gone. Yeah. And that's the fantasy that that is the escapist fantasy is escaping from the idea that, I don't know, cleaners and, and fry cooks and shit exist. Something Kurt pointed out, uh, Kurt, Kurt Schiller of Blood Knife said when he grew up, he loved stories about inventors and, and explorers. Those Victorian or Edwardian adventure stories were often about an, an inventor or an, ex- an intrepid explorer. And he got so depressed when he grew up and he realized that those aren't actual jobs. <laughs> That's just shit you do when you're a rich, idle fail son. Yeah. And you don't have a real job. And it's always and it's funded probably by your family's diamond mind in South Africa or something equally evil. And and thinking about that, I'm thinking about how many steampunk stories they borrow from those adventure stories. And they're about this kind of person. They're about an explorer or an adventure or an adventurer, fake rich person, idle person jobs. They're not about a factory worker. They're not about the steampunk factory workers trying to organize. They're not about, I don't, I don't know, something like that. And I think that could make just a good story. There's this, the big optimistic sto- fantasy story everyone loved, the goblin emperor. The protagonist is an emperor. Mm. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, okay, he's a marginalized person, but he is an emperor, and poor people and working class people in that story are really not very well portrayed. Carlo Yeager Rodriguez wrote a really, really good article, uh, a really, really good review of it in, in Blood Knife. House in the Cerulean Sea, the protagonist is a white-collar bureaucrat. Do androids dream of electric sheep? The protagonist is a cop who eventually gets enough money to buy a real goat, which is a totally expensive luxury item. Even at the end of Neuromancer, I know the guy's like a pizza delivery guy, but he ends up getting to be a hacker again. So it's like this this not being a poor working class person is restored. You either start off middle or upper class or you end up there, mm-hmm. but you don't end there. And I, I think a lot of writers, especially if you're like middle class or upper class, the idea of ending working class strikes them as very frightening or depressing or, or misery porn, quote unquote. But yeah. It, 
doesn't have to be that way. No. Like, yeah, there's, it, it just, I don't know. I think, I think there's definitely more to being happy, philosophical, than, than ending up with everything you ever wanted. Right. Right. And there's something, something I've seen coming out of fandom a lot is the coffee shop AU, the cozy coffee shop AU. It's this mm-hmm. idea of a slice of life story that's people just hanging out in a coffee shop and it's considered this wonderful, warm haven community. And all I'm thinking is if you're writing, if that's how you think of it, you probably haven't worked in a cafe mm-hmm. or in food service because <laughs> being a barista kind of sucks. It kind of sucks shit. It's really tiring. Your customers are dicks a lot of the time. People are really uptight. There's always such a rush. Yeah, you can get burned on that fucking... You can get burned on the... You're you're blasting hot steam. It's very easy to burn yourself on that. Yeah, and and slipping and and, and just all kinds of crap. Slipping on the floor. You do a lot of prep work. If You might do prep work if you're in food service, so there's a good chance of cutting yourself. In general, a small... Small mom and pop restaurant owners are really, really bad with safety. So instead of a proper step ladder in the storeroom, you are using a chair with one broken leg. Yeah, yeah. There's Done a that. very good chance that you will fall down. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of glossing over the difficulties of being working class, which I would invite people to see as instead of misery porn, that's conflict. The thing that drives your story, <laughs> you know? Yeah, amazing. Uh, um, just I don't know. Oh, coffee shop AU. It's 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 magical, cozy place. Not for the person making the fucking coffee. It's not. It's Most of the time, it's not. I mean, I wrote I wrote my restaurant story, my food service story, but it, it's not a it's not a cozy story. It ends with a waitress poisoning all of her customers. <laughs> Good and I her. needed to write that story to like get it out of me after after working in food service for years and years. Well, I hope she got away with it. <laughs> oh, she didn't, but 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 it was okay. <laughs> Still, it was very cathartic for her. She had a great time. Good. I, I I guess it doesn't fit into the juvenile escapist power fantasy. I fi- think maybe it challenges the just world fallacy too. When the mm-hmm. hero is not rewarded with wealth at the end, it the idea that People can be good and smart and hardworking and still be poor is very uncomfortable. Incredibly. People have a lot of, I, I feel like even beyond just world fallacy, you tell people that you've been poor, or you are poor, they, their thinking is like on rails. They have a, a whole ideology built up around why people are poor. It's often a meritocracy of some kind. Right. And it's nonsense. Yeah. Like you deserve, you're, you're bad. You deserve it some way. Maybe you, you made bad choices or maybe you're just a bad person and that's why you're poor. And that's why redneck characters are always bad people. They're always, 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 always bad people. There's no gay rednecks? What? That doesn't exist. There are no gay poor people. It's not like there's a disproportionate number of low income people who are queer. What? No. I never. never. What? Of course not. Queers are all rich. Anyway, but it is frustrating. I mean, I think just from a political standpoint, obviously it's worth writing about lower income people because they're people. And I find it striking that there's so much talk about representation, but not much in the way of social class mm-hmm. representation. And and throughout history, the vast majority of human beings were not noblemen. The pet, stop attacking my chair. The majority of people were just kind of working class or poor. Yep. And always have been. And also rich people kind of suck. And we don't need to glamorize them. We don't. Like that's we don't. they're gross. We have to we that's worth talking about. We have to sanitize the hell out of what rich people do, except for, you know, Game of Thrones and a Song of Ice and Fire where where they largely don't do that. But in order to make them protagonists Often you have to make a good king or a good queen, and no such thing. Mm-hmm. No such thing as a good. You get a lot of. I love Jane Austen, but often the nicest thing she can say about somebody, like one of her shorthands for somebody is a good person, is that 
he's a landlord and and his tenants love him. Yeah, I remember when she sees Mr. Darcy's house and she realizes he's a great guy because he doesn't beat his servants. Yes. They're like, it's great. It's great working for him. Yeah, it's great working for him. That's a pretty low bar, man. It's 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 a real low bar. Like all of his tenants love him. He takes good care of them and it's like, well, you're supposed to do that. Yeah. He's not a slumlord. Hooray. Yeah, hooray. Which I guess for the 19th century was about as decent as you can be if you were wealthy. Yep. <laughs> that 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 is the best you could do back then. That that was above and beyond the norm, unfortunately. It it is weird that the shorthand for being a great guy is is nice to the waiter. And it's like, wait a minute. Why is like the you waiter... should just be that by default. Right. And also like why is the waiter the sort of recipient of whatever morality anybody else has? Yeah. <laughs> is this the waiter the object in all of this? Yeah. 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 But from a craft or a creative standpoint, I think it. let's talk about that and why it's worth talk, writing about peasants, writing about working class people in speculative fiction. And, and that is, as you've touched on earlier, the lives of common people are interesting and have been interesting. Medieval, pe- medieval peasants got up to some crazy shit. Like I've been reading a little bit about medieval football. The only rule was get the ball to the place where it's supposed to go. That was the only fucking rule. And an entire village would play, like hundreds of people at a time. Yeah. Ver- the goals were miles another- apart. It'd be like, the yeah. o- literally, the only rule is try not to kill anyone. Mm-hmm. And it would kind of turn into a days long riot. Like, it sounds sick. It sounds like a fucking great time. People would come from miles away to either play or to observe. Yeah. Because like- it was just a crazy shit show for like days. It sounds amazing. People would camp out and have picnics on the roofs to watch people do this because you wouldn't want to be on the ground. People would fucking bowl you over. It sounds great. Yeah, it's it's and and it's they were able to do this because they had more days off than you might think. And they were fucking poor. Yeah, there was no TV, no video games. You gotta do something. That's right. Like, let's play riot ball, let's do it. And like upper wealthy upper middle class people are kind of boring, honestly. They are. They're, they're really not that interesting. And we've definitely heard their stories before. And we don't, we don't need more. We've got yeah. heard that for the most part. I don't know. Village-wide mob football sounds more interesting than croquet. Yeah, or, or like the, the feud between the local monastery and people who live there. Like, monastics wouldn't even fucking talk. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Asshole. Bunch of nerds. Exactly. That's what they thought. They were like, these are fucking nerds. <laughs> <laughs> These fucking nerds. Like an 80s slubs versus snobs movie. Mm-hmm. Just with monks. Presents and monks. And plus, we've seen enough noblemen. I'm interested in shit I haven't seen before. Right. Uh, and I mean, it, in some ways, in some ways, the agency or lives of noblemen are also really, really restricted, especially if you're a woman. You're very limited to these certain spaces you kind of supposedly they have greater agency but they kind of really can't go wherever they want it's you kind of stick to these predetermined castle monastery cathedral maybe battlefield but you you can't really roam that much i i do feel like like you'll see like movies about versailles like stuff like that that really don't like for some reason even when people write about royalty, they don't portray ro- royalty, which is very strange. Like Versailles, they didn't have enough toilets, so people shat in the stairwells. Whoa. Yeah. People just would shit in the stairwells, like hundreds of people, because God. a bunch of people showed up. They didn't have any privacy. Like, it's a, I've been to Versailles. It's a shotgun. The top floor is a, is the royal rooms, and it's it's everybody's room. People could just wander through. There would be, I think, the king had a hernia at one point, if I'm remembering right. It was either a hernia or, or or piles, and he needed surgery on it, on his ass. So <laughs> dozens of people came to watch the king get surgery on his ass. Oh, my God. I, I think it was hemorrhoids. It was hemorrhoids. And from there on, and, and this was a big political thing because surgeons versus doctors was a big historical conflict right. and surgeons were not 
looked well upon. But the surgeon fixed his piles. And so he had like a bandage on his ass and everybody started wearing bandages on their ass as like a fashion statement and getting their own hemorrhoid surgery to be like, oh, I'm just like the king. I had an ass problem. Like, nobody's writing that fucking story. We've got all these kings that like, who is writing that story? And and it's it's really weird that, that, that even the stories about kings and queens make kings and queens so much less weird and interesting. Yeah, that then yeah, the real th- like sanitized and glamorous, and not the fucking insane inbred freaks they really were. Absolutely, the king had a the king had a guy who to wipe his ass for him. He sure did, and that and is never in fantasy. Around. Yeah, there's never like the royal ass wiper. Yeah, and he had an important thing because people didn't have a lot of health indicators, so somebody would need to be able to look at the stool and see, does he have does he have health problems? One of the kings, I think King George III, and a lot of his his relatives had porphyria, which would mean purple urine would be a sign of an oncoming attack. So there was a health reason why they had somebody there who they trusted to be able to to give the king and, and health advisors like feedback on, hey, you're eating well, like stuff like that. Yeah. But it was well, yeah, and I think physicians would test for diabetes by just tasting the urine. Yeah, they sure would. And it's like, oh, it's sweet. Okay, you you got the honey sickness. You got to cut back on honey. Right. So it's it's. I don't know. For some, I, I feel like there's a classism to it because it's so sanitized that that it's very much this this. Um, yeah, rich people don't shit. Yeah, rich people don't shit. They don't have the illnesses that they had from inbreeding. They don't a lot of, of kings and queens were were remarkably cruel. And not like oh, yeah. ooh, it's so glamorous, this evil queen is cruel. They were they were bullies. A lot of them became kings or queens at like eleven or twelve. Yeah. They were just nasty people. Yeah, they were they were nasty. It is kind of striking that people complain about Game of Thrones for being so grim dark, but Real life kings and queens really were fucking disgusting. And I, something I find kind of interesting is that there's this perception that child marriage was normal throughout history, but it's not. It was mainly an aristocrat thing. Yep. Peasants didn't marry children because, number one, that's gross. And number two, if you say if you're a farmer and you're looking for a wife, you need a woman who can help you milk the cows and pluck the chickens and help you run a farm. And a little 11 year old can't fucking do that shit. Yeah, and if if you made it past about five years old, you were going to live to about 60, 65. So people married 22, 23, 24, 26, like normal times. At a normal age. Yeah. Um, they married at a reasonable age. Yep. And and Good all the them. child marriages were, were mostly because they needed to secure. They also had betrothals, so, so a lot of the marriages weren't as young yeah, they as, weren't consummated then. Like, okay, yeah. you're getting married, quote unquote, at eight eleven, but you're not actually going to do anything for like at least five years. Right, exactly. But but it was still we need to get this alliance in the fucking bag right now. Yeah, yeah. Which that that's something that strikes me that child marriage was mainly like a creepy rich person thing. Yeah, and that peasants did not fucking do that shit. And I'm thinking like rural, a lot of peasants throughout history. It kind of seems like women had maybe more agency or, or I don't know, more freedom. Because, like, with farming communities, I'm thinking in ancient Athens. I know this isn't medieval anymore, but in old, but in Athens, well-to-do ladies, well-to-do Athenian ladies were expected to stay home mm. and weave. And that was it. You could go out in public, like, twice a year. Yes. And that was it. But peasant women... These were the, they were the ones who were bringing the goods to marketplace. So peasant women had relatively more, I don't know if freedom's the right word, but more, more of an ability to live in public life because you were taking the goods to market and you were the saleswoman and you were handling money. You were haggling with people. These were really, really tough women. They, They had to be tough. These were actually pretty fucking strong and hardy women. There's a scene in... In Lysistrata, where Lysistrata calls in for backup, and it's basically the market women who just come in and beat the shit out of everybody because 
they just had a reputation for being tough as nails, these people. So it's very striking. If you want to tell a tough woman story, there they are. Yeah. They're just not rich. They're probably selling porridge and yelling. Yeah. We're, we're, but they'll kick the shit out of you. Medieval gender roles are, are kind of interesting because a lot of our ideas about medieval gender roles actually come from Victorian era, which had its right. own very restrictive gender roles. But Victorians were, were absolutely obsessed with, with the Middle Ages. There would be like oh, yeah. this medieval revival architecture because they were very, very interested in it. So they had a sort of reconstructed image of the Middle Ages that, that we sometimes think of as authentic. Women in the Middle Ages were considered more sexual than men. Right. And the idea of women as sexless is a very, very recent belief. Yeah. That yeah. was not the norm throughout most of human history. Women in ancient Greece, too, women were believed to just be hypersexual. Yeah, insatiable. Ludicrously promiscuous, so you had to keep them locked up, or they'd just fuck everybody they could. Absolutely. But in, in the Middle Ages, this was considered fairly normal. It was, of course, sinful, but normal. It was more normal. So women didn't, you know, weren't necessarily locked up. People had had sex outside of wedlock all the fucking time. It was not. It was right frowned on, but it wasn't normal. No. And especially after plague, a bunch of people died, and it you needed a bricklayer. You didn't care who did it. Women would do it. Right. Everybody in general was more free to go to a, a landlord who, who, or a lord who paid better, paid better wages, gave better terms, whereas before they were kind of stuck on the land and, and women started doing things like pioneering the profession of lawyering or becoming alewives, just all starting businesses, stuff like that. And then it wasn't until the Renaissance, which was, was, fairly shortly after the end of the plague, where there was this backlash against these new gender roles, where, where that's when you got the witch burnings. A lot of people think of witch burnings as a medieval thing, but no, it was a renaissance right. thing. You think of them as a dark age thing. Right. Yeah. No, it was renaissance era. I forget what it's called. I think it's the Maloris Maleficarum, the, the hammer of the witches by, by a king. I think mm. it was James who wrote that about how you could recognize witches and and all of these enlightenment thinkers came from this era. So it's very weird that we think of the enlightenment as the birth of modern age, which which it is, but came with all of this backlash against the freedom of, of women and, and, and their agency and the freedom of peasants and their agency. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that because my perception of the burning times is like, okay, it was the Dark Ages. No, no Dark I Ages. Didn't really associated with the Renaissance. That. Yeah, um, huh. and the Dark Ages refers to there weren't a lot of surviving texts. It does not refer to the progressiveness of the the paper and the scrolls didn't hold up well. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. It's made out of paper. It's not going to last too good. Right. So it was It was just way more progressive. There were female Vikings. I'm not going to say that it was like a great time to be a woman. No. Very few places in the world and very few periods of time are great places to be women. But there's definitely a lot of cultures to come up with these stories about how much worse it used to be as sort of a way of talking about how much better we are now. And sometimes it's just not true the stories we come up to that effect yeah yeah definitely mm. all right so why don't we talk a little bit about some examples of stories about broke or poor or working class or peasant people that are cool and good just because we've talked about no that it can be interesting but let's talk about some stories maybe speculative maybe not but fictional mm -hmm. about broke people that are fucking great i'm gonna start with a lot of Nathan Ballingrud's protagonists, Nathan Ballingrud, he wrote North American Lake Monsters. He's a sort of a horror short story writer. And a lot of his protagonists tend to be salt of the earth, kind of working class guys because the the author himself, he, he had a, kind of an interesting background. He 
was, I think he was a bartender. I think he worked on an oil rig. He's had these sort of salt of the earth type jobs and, and experiences, and that's reflected in his protagonists. And they're and they're great and they're really compelling because there's this extra layer of vulnerability of, okay, you're 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 kind of a regular guy, you know, a regular sort of beer drinking construction worker, and now you got to deal with a fucking werewolf. <laughs> Jesus Christ, God damn, man, I'm not up for this. And it, they're really, they're really, really good. Sounds great. Of course, Alien and to a certain extent, Aliens, like the yeah. Aliens Union, a union shop. Yeah, yeah, they're mining. truckers in space. It is yeah. not white collar space. This is blue collar space travel. That's right. And it's great. It's awesome. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's very much a um. Everything goes to shit because nobody listens to the the quality control lady. Right. No one <laughs> listens to her. And it's like the PMC fucking nerd science officer who gets everybody killed. That's right. It's that fucking guy. And then and then the sequel, it's another it's a weaselly little corporate guy who's who's fucking shit up for everybody. Absolutely. And and of course the, the soldier class doesn't take seriously what the the working class person says. Right. Uh, even even that has kind of a class element to it. Right. And also like, you're a civvy. What do you know? That's right. <laughs> that kind of thing there, too. But yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. And, it, and it's great. I mean, we love Alien. We love Ridley Scott's Alien. That's right. It's so good. So, okay. Alien, uh, for another movie, that Eggers film, The Lighthouse. It is about a guy with a really shitty job. He's <laughs> going fucking crazy in a lighthouse. It's quite good. It, it is an incredible movie. It's it's one of my favorites of the past ten years. But you know, oh, I'm, it's I'm... great. It is a big hallucination, and you're. I love how they don't explain things. Like you're not sure it is is Willem Dafoe even real, or does the protagonist have a split personality? There are these hints that maybe he's not real, but they never like one hundred percent. There's never a scene where you really find that out. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's yeah, it's definitely very. It works on more than one level. I think it's a retelling of a myth. I think I think it's Prometheus. That myth is is yeah. There's a lot of way. Prometheus in it, and it, it's also based partially on a really upsetting incident. Of it was a guy who had that job, and his partner died, but he wasn't able to properly bury the body or something. And I, I'm, oh. he was he was tied to a rope in the storm, just sort of dangling for weeks or something really fucked up oh wow yeah it's just some just some crazy hurt i I don't remember the the details but it was based very loosely on a true story that just sounds like an extremely bad time for that dude well it's over now (laughs) yeah well well it's not his problem anymore he's been dead 100 years that's right let's see j per jr bolt a friend of the show jr bolt he mentioned trailer park boys Imagine a medieval fantasy trailer park, boys. That would slap. It would slap so hard. It would be so much fun. Young Ricky telling Sheriff Leahy, like, prithee, I will give thee a hay penny to fuck off. A, a lot of Nick Mamata's stories are, are he's, he's very working class, and a lot of his are from a very working class point of view. And he, of course, does a lot of science fiction fantasy, Lovecraftian stuff. Oh, yeah. A lot of Abby Mayotis's stories. She's more sci-fi, I think, than fantasy. We also covered her book of short stories, Alien Virus Love Disaster, in on, on a on a bonus episode. She has a lot of kind of hard scrabble protagonists, and they're quite they're really really terrific stories. Mm-hmm. Of course, Terry Pratchett. Of course, Terry Pratchett does a lot of um. Uh, yes, Harley. Calm down, buddy. His his characters often do sort of change circumstances but they often don't really necessarily change classes over the course yeah. of the story which is is really interesting that's pretty cool i i still haven't read terry pratchett i've heard so many wonderful things about him <laughs> he's you know he's he's really how to put it I, i'm not a huge fan of neil gaiman don't tell anybody i'm gonna get my nerd card revoked oh no but he he worked with neil gaiman a few times so he often lumped in together with him but but yeah terry pratchett definitely he's got his witches series and i'm not sure what class of witch 
Yeah, who knows? But uh, but his. Uh, I feel like they're kind of merchant class or something. Yeah, a teasing class. Yeah, but uh, his books set around the witches in a small country called Lanker, which is maybe the size of a few, you know, a handful of push football pitches, and has and it's parodies, and it has a king, but he's a king of of about seventy people. So it's it's definitely it's silly. It's very silly. And it, it he has a wife of Bathish type character called Nanny Og. And I, I wrote to him that I wanted to be Nanny Og when I grew up when I was six. And Aww. again, she's like wife of Bathish, several husbands, uh constantly doing body jokes. And he, he, he wrote back to me and he's he said he hoped I didn't fully understand Nanny. That's so good. That's lovely that he wrote back to you, too. That's so sweet. He did. And when I met him at 14, he remembered my letter. It's very oh, my God. He, he had, he died of, this is a huge thing, but he died of Alzheimer's, which was such a loss because he had like an encyclopedic memory of anything he'd ever read and anybody he'd oh. ever met. It was, incre- oh it was incredible God. talking to him and hearing him talk because he could just He'd read most of his local library, like all of his children's section, all of the adult section by the time he was like 14. And he could quote wow. you where he knew stuff. Wow. Yeah. Incredible That's guy. extraordinary. That is so cool. So recommending him. I'll recommend something, a suggestion from the Discord. I haven't read this one. The Alchemy of Stone. I haven't read it. But <laughs> many, many people in our Discord... Said, yeah, yeah, that's a really good one. So, The Alchemy of Stone. <laughs> there it is. It is a fantasy novel by Russian writer Ekaterina Sedia. It is an urban fantasy slash steampunk novel dealing with an automaton's involvement in a proletarian revolution in the fictional city of Iona. So that sounds pretty cool. That does sound cool. Yeah, that sounds cool. It's a robot uprising. I'm in favor. That sounds neat. Let's see. Oh, uh, a book that I read in high school. Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time. It's from the 1970s. It is a queer, gender-fluid, utopian novel that, that goes to some dark places. It's it's good, and the protagonist is sort of a lower-income Latino woman. Latino woman. Latina. Dirt. Oh, yeah. Members of the Discord also recommended Doro Hedoro. It is a Japanese, a Japanese manga series. And it is about... An amnesic reptilian-headed Kaiman working together with his friend to recover his memories and survive in a strange and violent world. So that sounds cool. So why don't we wind it down? It's been about an hour before we go. Please plug your work. Where can we find and support you? I know you're on YouTube. I am on YouTube. I am on YouTube at Qualia Redux, one word. I'm on Substack, Substack at MK Anderson, all one word. You can find me there. And of course, I'm at these underscore Qualia on Twitter for as long as that lasts. Um, yeah. And you can find me in the, the right good Discord. Come hang out. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, shoot the shit at the right good Discord. It costs a dollar, and that's it. <laughs> it doesn't cost eight dollars like uh, Twitter soon will, apparently. <laughs> right. And and it... You know what drives me crazy? Elon Musk keeps printing that meme of like, oh, eight dollars, that's the cost of a Starbucks drink. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. That's that would that Frappuccinos would be a are cost. less than eight dollars. Significantly less. Even the fancy drinks are less. Unless you're doing that secret menu bullshit where it's like, add 32 pumps of dragon fruit. It's not going to cost $8. No. It's too much money. And plus, can you imagine what kind of freaking nerd I'd have to be to pay $8? For... Anyway. Um, yeah, no. I, I did do a video recently on why YouTube is, not YouTube, Twitter is in huge financial th- trouble. So you might want to check that one out. And yeah. think about if you're a writer, diversifying your means of connecting with your your base. 
Oh yeah, I'm I'm doing that. We're we're trying to look at like okay, where else can we go? We also have a, we Kitty Sneezes has a YouTube, and we put up Right Goods there. We also have a Substack. We're putting the this we're putting this podcast up on Substack too. So if you want new episodes in your inbox, just just follow it. It's part of my monthly newsletter. It's RS Benedict at Substack. Just because. I figure, okay, Twitter's going to collapse and I need a way to keep in touch with people. This seems like the logical next one because I don't want to do TikTok dances. I'm too old for that shit. Yeah. I need to. Oh. Anyway, that, that might be a shy for Instagram. I, I don't want to go to the tomb that is Facebook. God. And, and you know, Mastodon has downside. Co-host it's is too very hard. And, every, and you toot? I'm not going to toot. You don't toot. Just don't I'm tooting. You can't make me toot. They also have this culture. Like somebody talked about how how they used to be on Mastodon. Somebody would retweet or retweet her retweet. her her picture her pictures of her dog with content warning dog. God. <laughs> and in one of them, there there was just her dog's shadow, and it. This person retweeted it with content warning concept of. That's incredible. It's just, it's a very different culture. That's art. Art. That's amazing. <laughs> I don't think I could handle it. I couldn't, I can't go to Tumblr. Tumblr is way too fandom-ish. Yeah, and, and it's that, PV. I, I PV clash PV. with that pretty bad. It's very fandom-y and, and, you know, everybody is fighting all the time, like as bad or worse than Twitter, which is just the oh, worst God. of both worlds, maybe. Yeah, and you can type a lot longer posts on that too. So it's like, oh god, I'm just trying to imagine like a thousand words. I, I, I no. Somebody did a thirty thousand word call out of me on Tumblr. Holy fuck! Was I, it for an incredibly minor thing? Too? Oh, it was incredibly minor, or just like inscrutable fandom drama. It like was, you shipped the wrong characters. I, I think. I think one of my my sins, and maybe I did fuck up on this one. I'm not sure. But like Daisy Ridley, Star Wars thing, she she was avoiding paparazzi, so she was like in some sportswear and and wraparound sunglasses and all that. And right. I I joked that she was wearing a sport burka because it she uh, was just completely covered. Right. And this was apparently like the worst possible thing I could ever say about anyone. Uh, it's like it. I don't think that's the worst thing you could say about a person. Yeah, like it just there are significantly terrible... worse things you could say. Yeah, but her face is completely covered by like a sweatshirt and all that, and it was just yeah, yeah. That's taking things a little too seriously. I'm sorry. Yeah, and and sometimes I put like snarky like when I reblogged stuff. Sometimes I would put snarky tags on it, and this is you know terrible. How dare oh, I? No. Oh no. <laughs> We're on co-host, but apparently co-host is also terrible in some way, and we're not allowed to post yet anyhow. So. Yeah, they need to. They um, they need they're, to. Apparently, their t their TOS is has some really janky clauses in there. Yeah, which is not great. Yeah, they they are like claiming they've accidentally claimed copyright on everything that's posted. Oh, I don't like which that. they acknowledge is a problem, and they're they're gonna fix. And there've been okay. people who are like. How dare you, you know, they're doing their best. And it's like, I don't want people to do their best. I, I don't want to think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You you don't, you just don't want that clause on your on website. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But I don't know if it's enforceable or not, but it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing. And I'm sure they'll fix it. And I don't mean anything bad against them. It's just, it's, I'm, it really is about me as a writer who has to make a living mourning yeah. the fact that that we had some a terrible horrible website that was very good at one thing twitter that was useful it was very good for for finding like followers and getting your work seen it was yes. good for that and and, and, for and all in a way that many drawbacks yeah and we, yeah it was the place where people were like open to reading you as a writer and it, not to dunk on people who are trying their best to make something that's different that that doesn't have some of those downsides who are really trying to do something new and, and maybe don't have the resources to do it perfectly all at once it's just when we lose this it's going to be it's going to be 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. But at least we're losing it in the dumbest possible way for the dumbest possible reason, which yeah. is pretty funny. And we might and and Elon Musk is having to file a bunch of forms to disclose that he's selling Tesla stock, which keeps crashing. Yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. So we Twitter might go down, but Elon Musk might be very shortly not the richest man in the world anymore. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and he was like eighty I mean, billion reason- dollars ahead. He he's gonna lose that in a month or two, and I'm hell yeah. If I can find a way, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, to if somebody's gonna mark that event, I'm gonna set some time aside and have a. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, that sounds pretty sweet. I'll break out my tiny bottle of champagne for that. Hell yeah. Okay. So why don't we sign off then? Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this. Yeah, absolutely. Good to talk to you. And thank you all for listening. If you like what you heard, head to patreon.com slash writegood and subscribe. Thank you, Harley. (laughs) Until next time, keep writing good. This has been Write Good with Raquel S. Benedict. Hosted by Raquel S. Benedict and produced by Matt Keeley for KS Media LLC. Theme song by OK Glass. For comments and concerns, please write to us at writegood at kittysteezes.com. That is R-I-T-E-G-U-D at kittysteezes.com. You'd like to support us, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash writegood. This has been a Kitty Steezes production. Kittysneezes.com in color.